0: Hello from Austin and welcome to episode 111 of the National Security Law Podcast. We're brought to you by the Robert Strauss Center at the University of Texas. And you know, I say it every week, I bet most of y'all don't have any idea what the Strauss Center is. Got a good website, go check it out and see what that's all about. It's Tuesday, February 19th. I'm Bobby Chesney.
1: I'm Steve Ladek. Bobby, it is day four of the National Emergency. Have you have you stocked up on water? It's an
0: e emergency. Uh, yeah, I, was, I was telling you about this earlier. Yeah. I, so if you've got little kids, and, Which you're I do. Old, and you're in the market for books that you can read to your kid 50 days in a row without <laughs> entirely losing your mind, my recommendation of the day is e emergency e-mergency. Hmm. It's really good. It has nothing to do with the border. Topical. It's about a tribe of letters and what happens when the letter e gets hurt. It's good stuff. <laughs> I mean that is more of an emergency than I think the one we're in. But hey, well it's
1: given us something to talk about, isn't it? As Bonnie Raitt would say, let's give him something to talk about. So, we have you we You saw have, about Bonnie Raitt there. Yeah, no, so that? Um I did. I
0: I did. I thought that the Wait, well, we'll we'll do the review of James Taylor and Barney Raitt during frivolity. All right, we'll
1: that. say that. So, so stay on the edge of your seat, dear so, listeners.
0: What are we going to do about national security?
1: So, uh, we're going to do a quick Supreme Court update. Some news out of the court this morning. Um, most of it depressing to my mind, but you know what do I know? Uh, we're going to do a quick um, sort of AUMF update because I am stirred into a tizzy <laughs> by a Washington Times story from yesterday that I just, I just. I, I find mendacious he-
0: headline. Something happens online. get Steve worked up. Okay, so listen. This is not I a random. On a this is
1: not a random Twitter troll. This is the Washington <laughs> Bloody Times. Uh, to which someone else <laughs> would probably say, "What's the difference?" But yeah. you know. Um, <laughs> and much. then we're gonna and then we're gonna really sort of uh, not sort of formally deep dive, no, but we're gonna no. devote no. most of our time today to the fairly complicated um, legal questions resulting from Friday's completely preposterous, you know, insane, press, uh, uh, lunatic press conference accompanied national
0: emergency declaration. So it's a semi-deep dive on national emergency. It's a medium dive. Medium dive. Intermediate dive. Mm. Okay. Uh, so let's start off with our SCOTUS update. Uh, we've got Two well, we've got a series of cert denials. Yeah, two of which we've been talking about,
1: dude. Sorry
0: about Larry. Yeah,
1: well, you know, the um I, I, as as my co counsel said to me this morning, there's always habeas. <laughs> so all um, right, so
0: just to remind our listeners, what is the effect of cert denial? What what was the status quo that's now? Been so we were appealing.
1: In? We were directly appealing the conviction by a court-martial. We were challenging whether it was constitutional for the military to court-martial retired service members for non-military offenses committed after they retire. The Supreme Court denied cert without any comment, without any registered dissent. Um, Like other criminal cases, the question now is whether um, the defendant might want to pursue collateral relief in the federal civilian courts through habeas. Um, The the Solicitor General, in his brief in opposition to certiorari, specifically suggested that habeas might be a better vehicle for resolving Interesting. Our claim, um, you know, I, I have I have some skepticism about that, but I'm not sure we're not going to try.
0: We need a, we need a sound effect for vehicle problem. When you know there's this this <laughs> practitioners. <laughs> oh
1: no. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Uh, we are children. We're children.
1: I, I, I mean, the juvenile. I, I can't imagine that people sort of, you know, I, I imagine that people see the the sort of silliness of our of our banter as a feature, not a bug. But uh, the ones
0: the ones who've listened more than once, probably. <laughs> Can you imagine? There's got to be people every week who stumble upon this. Or someone like, what did it. I do? Well, and they're they're like, I thought I was gonna hear some sophisticated. I was gonna learn something. Well, if and if you hang in there long enough, you might. Yeah.
1: But there's Maybe. a price to be paid. Yeah, there's a price to be paid. Um. Anyway, the Supreme Court also denied cert in the Hamidullah
0: case. Um. So you know that's yep. the we talked about that last week. Yeah. The uh, the combatant immunity from prosecution, kind of the claim that uh, Army Regulation 190-8 uh, was not. F- Complied with, and that that's uh, an obstacle to proceeding with the ordinary civilian criminal yeah. prosecution. Um, so that's that- neither
1: of those, I think, generated headlines anywhere other than in my, you know, on, on my Twitter feed. Um, <laughs> but I, 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 think the most interesting thing that the Supreme Court that, that came out of the court today um, was a uh, concurring opinion, concurring the denial of certiorari In a case against Bill Cosby, of all people.
0: Yeah, it was really okay. So I saw this too. I came in here all excited that for once I was going to have something to talk about from the days, uh, the week's order list. You were already on it, of course, and predictably, uh, I've already
1: already called it lots of bad names on
0: Twitter. Oh, that I don't doubt. I I, I sometimes wonder (laughs) if you have like if you have a bot set up to do that instantly. That would be cool. Dude, so, some listener who can code uh, Twitter bots. Let's make a <laughs> <laughs> Justice a Thomas good... wrote something bot. Oh no, I meant like a Steve's mad about something bot. <laughs> those could be the, those could be the same bots. H- hashtag Steve's mad about. <laughs> <laughs> Somebody's going to do this. It's yeah, yeah. going to be great. Yeah. A good application of AI. Justice Thomas concurred in the denial of cert in uh, in McKee, uh, which in to, in order to express his views, his rather interesting views. About pulling back uh, the First Amendment protections for public figures in defamation context.
1: So basically, I mean, at the at the end of his opinion, Justice Thomas launches a broadside on a 1964 Supreme Court decision called New York Times versus Sullivan. That's a biggie. I was going to say, I mean, I, I when I think about the most important First Amendment decisions by the Supreme Court, you know, the modern First Amendment, the First Amendment that we think about today, I mean— I don't know if Sullivan is, is number one, Bobby, but any list of the top five and Sullivan's on there. So Sullivan, I mean, so the, the, the thing about Sullivan, and, and I, want to, I want you to jump in, but the thing about mm-hmm. Sullivan is Sullivan says um, a public figure cannot bring a lawsuit, right, for, or it will be a defense um, yes. to, to a lawsuit by a public figure for defamation, for libel, for slander, whatever, um, that the speaker of this allegedly defamatory comment was not acting with actual malice. Um, or put into sort of plainer terms, that if a public figure wants to sue someone, like a newspaper, for defamation uh, for libel, um, you need more than just that the newspaper said something that's false. You need some kind of proof that the intent of the newspaper, that the conduct of the newspaper, was malicious. So
0: intent or reckless disregard, yep, or reckless disregard. for the yep. truth. Yep. So like if some guy, like I don't, some guy named Donald, <laughs> who's hypothetically pro- who's prominent in politics or something, uh, decides that some uh, newspaper has defamed him. There's a there's a higher mens rea showing required of him than if some random dude named Donald uh, has the same complaint, right? Indeed. And uh, so the underlying which led, which led me obvious. to wonder out
1: loud in yeah. class this morning whether I'm a public figure. Um.
0: Um, oh, I think you're you know, so so. McKee, the, the, the Bill Cosby yeah. accuser, is described as a quasi-public figure. Right. This sort of intermediate status, where you're you're not Beyonce, but you're uh, but you're <laughs> but you're 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 known beyond the average person on the street. I think I think Steve, you probably are in that category. I think we
1: have an episode title. This episode is not Beyonce.
0: <laughs> Steve's not Beyonce. I think that, that's got to get more clicks. We finally found a clickworthy, <laughs> clickbait worthy. Clickbait.
1: Anyway, so so Steve's why is no <laughs> Why does this matter? So this matters because <laughs> I, I think it's it's hopefully obvious. Uh, let, I want to get to the Trump point in a minute, but before Trump, like even before the modern conversation, um, New York Times versus Sullivan is actually a critical part of press freedom. I mean, the Supreme Court has been very careful to never give the press clause of the First Amendment independent content. Um, to sort of separate out professional journalists for special protection. Instead, they've gone through the free speech clause um, and created protections that apply to everybody but that have a special salience in the context of journalism. And the idea behind Sullivan is to protect... I mean, Justice Brennan makes this point expressly in his majority opinion. We want to protect criticism of public officials that may be wrong but isn't malicious, right? We, we would rather protect that than chill People from valid criticism of public officials because they're worried about the litigation risk.
0: Right, and now to connect it up to national security, which does run through the, uh, uh, the current president in, in this respect, there's no question in my mind that one of the linchpin elements of saying that we have a society that enjoys... Uh, national security, is that we enjoy uh, protection within reasonable bounds from threats from undue authoritarian centralization of government power that would suppress freedom in a given country. And there are a lot of countries around the world that lack this. And the the hallmark of lacking it is lacking a free press. Mm -hmm. And one way to impose significant pressure on a press and to subordinate it and to intimidate it, potentially bankrupt it, is to use, now I'm not saying you you can't have defamation claims because you can, you need to be able to police the boundaries of truth when people are recklessly and intentionally violating them, sure, but to lower the bar down further from that increases the risk, doesn't produce the result, but increases the risk that you are gonna have further loss of a free press, that, smooths the pathway towards more authoritarianism that's the thing you don't want and we have a president who talks all the time just this past weekend of all things about sarnet live i mean the the guy he is, wants retribution he's well he's so fragile like yeah. the slightest criticism but again what what else you might could say you, he's a snowflake you, you might say um but let's move away from him and just say that what is thomas doing he's not disputing any of that but what he is doing is as is his want he's He's a methodological methodological purist, to a certain extent in terms of constitutional interpretation, wants to focus uh, more so, I would say, than any other member of the current court on um, come hell or high water, we're going to go with what he thinks the original intended applications were. And in this case, he says, look, if you go back prior to 1964, New York Times versus Sullivan, um, you don't have the First Amendment providing this particular hedge against the more robust application of defamation law. It's left to the states to decide. And he says, therefore, unless somebody wants to change the Constitution, we should go back to that. I- I don't see any other votes emerging for this no, view. No, no.
1: I, I, so so to be clear, I, I wrote on Twitter this morning I thought this was terrifying. It's not terrifying because I think that that means that all of a sudden someone's going to go find a case and we're going to have five votes and Sullivan's going to get reversed. I mean, right, like, right. I'm not sure. Right, I mean,
0: it's, it's the normalization of the yes, idea.
1: Yes, yes. And, and so so there are two levels to the problem. So first of all, it's not at all clear to me that Thomas is right as a matter of original intent. I mean, if we go back to the trial of John Peter Zanger, um, which is at the nice. heart of so much of the, modern under uh, of the sort of where the the sort of founding of our idea of, pre- of press freedom comes mm-hmm. from you know, I don't. I mean, there's a fair amount of pretty solid historical work in Sullivan, right? So it's not clear. It's not clear to me at all that the that even as a matter of pure originalism, Thomas is right. But even if he is, I mean, the First Amendment. We taught. We teach con law like the Supreme Court has made the First Amendment a far more powerful, robust constraint on government than the founders intended. Um, and so, as Thomas is saying, we should revisit. All of that? I mean, he's, he's part of some of the decisions that have made the First Amendment a more robust check on government than the original understanding. So you're saying this is pulling a string on a sweater? Uh, it's, a, it's pulling a string on a sweater that I'm not sure he wants to unravel. And I, I'm just going to say this. I think it's, you know, if he had written this three years ago, it would have been a lot less jarring to me than writing it while we have a president who has publicly said he wants to change libel laws, right? The, you know, yeah. the, the president has repeatedly tweeted that the libel laws in this country should be changed. What he really
0: means is the First Amendment should be changed, and this is overruling Sullivan is how you do that. Very interesting. Well, it's a question that can now join the queue of standard questions for judicial nominees. Oh, gosh. Judiciary committees, take, or committee, oh. take notes.
1: Oh. I just, it's, it's uh,
0: ugh. Ugh. All right. Ugh. Uh, Speaking of UG, <laughs> you you have an UG moment. You're you're fired up about some. I know you're a voracious reader of the Washington Times. Steve. I'm really not, but, um, but.
1: I, I, I must say. But but I saw a headline last night that had that that got my my dander up. Right, Steve is mad on the internet. Um, you know, it's a meme. There's a, a there's meme a, there's, when a, it there's a graphic out there that you see all the time. Right, you know what's wrong, honey? Something is wrong on the internet. Right? Oh. It's like an XKCD <laughs> cartoon. Um, this is worse than the internet, though. This is actually a you know. Quasi reputable public publication. All right. So um, what did they do that has got your dander up so much? So there's a, a dramatic headline, exclusive. Ooh. Iran al Qaeda alliance may provide legal rationale for U.S. military strikes. That um, is clickbaity. That's very <laughs> clickbaity. So I clicked, um, and it's a it is what
0: uh, purports to be a news article. Although I'm not sure. You know. Well, there's how news. news it it's is. just it, it, you got to read it a certain way. So. What, what is the punchline? It's a long article, talks a lot about... The Washington Times has learned that the administration is focusing
1: increasingly on the unlikely alliance between Iran and Al-Qaeda with what some sources say is an eye toward establishing a potential legal justification for military strikes against Iran or its proxies. All right, this reads to me like someone in the administration feeding to the Washington Times a trial balloon story about whether they're going to get a whole lot of blowback if they start trying to argue that the 2001 authorization. For of military force allows
0: it to use force against Iran, but isn't that? I mean, just to play devil's advocate, yeah. isn't that a little dog bites man? Like, well, of, of course it is, right? That, so, is it not surprising? I, listen, I I
1: have I have problems with it. I'm not surprised that it would happen, but it gets better, right? So it's one thing to have a un, to have a, an article that repeatedly says sources say dot dot dot, and according to sources dot dot dot, but then the article turns to legal experts. Okay, And that's, yeah. where, I, that's, where, that's where my, my so, radar so is. So I,
0: I agree that that's where we should focus. I, yes. I just don't think that the fact that there was a, a, a trial balloon uh, conveyed to journalists is, is in any way surprising so, okay. or unusual. I think it's worth, though, looking at, well, what is this balloon that's being tried? Right. Let's put it on trial. So the balloon is that insofar as Iran's
1: operations in the Middle East are increasingly dovetailing with at least some actions by al-Qaeda affiliates, um, that Iran could increasingly be said to be harboring al-Qaeda, and of course, um, nations that harbor the organizations that attach us 9-11 are at least in theory covered by the text of the 2001 AUMF. Um, here's a quote from the article. Legal analysts say the administration likely would have a strong argument. Um, let me actually read the quote from our friend Charlie Dunlap, um, former Air Force Major General, now Executive dire- Director of the Center for Law Ethics and National Security at Duke. For many reasons, I think we need an updated AUMF, but if the facts show Iran or any other nation is harboring al Qaeda, that's a circumstance which would make the argument for the applicability of the 2001 AUMF quite strong. Okay. I agree with that quote. Yep. That is, but the- your
0: objection is not to what Charlie said. You're objecting to what the, uh, the writer did to characterize this as somehow equaling. We currently have a, a strong, strong argument, argument for using right? AMF to so, attack Iran. Well, rod. first of all,
1: I have two problems. One, you can't quote one lawyer and say analyst plural. Charlie contains multitudes. I, I, I'm sure Charlie would be the first to, to, <laughs> to admit that he is one
0: person. We, um, we love Charlie. Charlie, no, we, we hope you're listening. But We're thinking I, of you.
1: But I will say, you know, um, Charlie is one person. I'm not right. And second, even on its terms, right, Charlie's quote, I think, is a perfectly accurate recitation of the text of the AUMF it is not an analysis of the fa- of the quote facts unquote as relayed by
0: the article right so let's let's step back from the characterization which we should and just focus on this idea that someone wanted someone in the administration maybe wanted may, may, may to may test rhyme with this. Bolton. <laughs> somebody named name. Uh, Don Jolton has uh, perhaps wanted to float the idea that, you know, what do people think of this idea of using the AUMF as the answer to the separation of powers question, is there already authority to strike Iran militarily? Um, The point of Charlie's quote, which I very much agree with, is that the AUMF of 2001 clearly says that whomever the president determines was responsible for 9-11 attacks and whoever might harbor them, Mm -hmm. and harbors the word used as the president determines, uh, the president can use all necessary and appropriate force. So everyone agrees that's what the text says. You and I, for, what, 17 years or more now, (laughs) uh, have been part of these debates about, well, who who counts as part of al-Qaeda? What about associated forces, et cetera? All that time, there's been nary a serious discussion about who besides the Afghan Taliban which was the original object of the harboring clause. Everyone understands that. Um, who might then be picked up as franchises of al-Qaeda or, or affiliated groups or associated forces uh, end up in other locations where the Taliban are not the hosting entity? And indeed, they haven't they haven't been the hosting entity for quite a long time. Um, it's not been part of the growth of the AOMF covered group category, But the potential's always been there. And I think this is actually quite interesting to draw attention to something that's frankly written pretty capaciously. If it were the case that the Iranian government was at some level of comprehensiveness and intentionality and significance, genuinely hosting, let's let's say, let's make up facts and say it was analogous to what was going on with uh, mullah Omar's regime in the in the fall of 2001 and it turns out hey I'm an al-zawahri and, and other al Qaeda leaders they're, they're all in Tehran hanging out and uh, the Iranians are thumbing their noses at everybody. I don't think it would be a stretch to say that you know it might be good it might be bad, but it wouldn't be a tricky application of the AMF to say look it, it applies there. The question is how far down the spectrum from that that not currently the case, easy fact pattern where there's you know explicit harboring of the entire organization how far down the spectrum towards the the far end where that must peter out is the current status quo and we learn from the article there's a there's all sorts of detail in it i'm not you know not sure how accurate it all is i'm no one's expert on this but if we uh, imagine that the upshot is that there are some number of uh I've acknowledged al-Qaeda figures who are enjoying protection, staying in Iran, allowed to do what they want to do, et cetera. At what point does it become harboring? The AMF's text doesn't include a definition of harboring. We don't really have anything, I think, analogous to draw on here. We can look at all the, the debates about associated forces we want. It's not the same question. I think we have an area here where there's a, a lot of ambiguity and vagueness to play with under the AMF. That's a bad thing. I think you and I both probably would very much like Congress to intervene with some sort of refreshed, more tailored authority, and if they did so, they should address this question. Uh, But do you agree with all that in the abstract? Yeah, I would just say I also wonder if part
1: of the harboring definition should be understood as as time-specific, right? That is to say, like, the point was not any country that at any point in the future harbors one member of Al-Qaeda. Um uh, right, is, is in perpetuity subject to the use of military force from the United States. I don't think Congress would have understood what it was
0: doing to authorize that. Well you, you emphasize two variables there. Let me tease them out or, yeah. or call them out. One is um the possibility that what, what harboring means was specific to the Taliban in Afghanistan, even if Al Qaeda or Associated Forces ideas would evolve beyond that, that the harboring clause was somehow narrower geographically or conceptually. Uh, Then the separate question you indicate, it with uh there's one person there there's the question of even if that's not the case and it could be you know it could, it could be a whole bunch of different countries over time who knows depends on the facts but what facts are then the sufficient conditions to make an entity a harboring entity i think that's a really difficult question on the margins even though there's got to be some clear outer boundaries right and it can't be the fact that one person who has some kind of tie to al-qaeda is found within your borders and you know, so what? Like, what are the steps then? Is is the measure that you didn't arrest them? What if you have them on house arrest? Uh, what if you have them monitored with some amount of freedom but not total freedom? At what point is one person ever enough? Probably one person, you know, unless it's Ayman al-Zawahiri himself, right. hard to see one person being enough. But like, is two enough? Well, so 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 Charlie says
1: in the quote in the article, and I agree with this, that this is yet further reason why Congress ought to revisit the AUF. Exactly. No,
0: we're on the same page but, there.
1: But I just want to say, I mean, I don't, I am more skeptical, certainly than Charlie is, and I think that you are, um, that the term harboring – that we ought to even indulge in a conversation about capaciously interpreting the term harboring, right? That, that I don't think Congress, when it passed the AUMF, could reasonably have been said to have been thinking about, you know, future possible e- – even if you define harboring – more narrowly than I did, right? That I'm not sure Congress was therefore saying, like, it's tag jurisdiction, where we could use force against any country that then does, you know. I mean, Iran, there are other remedies for Iran. Iran's a state sponsor of terrorism, right? Iran, I mean, I I feel like we shouldn't go to war with other countries as opposed to groups without Congress saying so.
0: Well, I'm not gonna quibble with that. I certainly don't think we should go to war with Iran based on this thin fig leaf, but, I don't think we can say that Congress in 2001, that we can say that it is clearly or clearly was the intent of Congress at that time to only authorize this vis-a-vis Afghanistan or they would have said so. I think that – or at least you'd have some indication of that. I think that if you go back into that time period and imagine various hypotheticals such as – and remember, bear in mind, no one thought that al-Qaeda was – Only present in Afghanistan. Mm -hmm. It was understood to be uh, primarily present there, but it was also understood to have a presence, for example, in East Africa Mm -hmm. uh, and other locations. Uh, And so I think actually it might be just as plausible to say that if you stipulate a significant enough tolerated and, and supported presence. But in another place besides Afghanistan, if some other government went rogue and hosted uh, the Al-Qaeda franchise, whether it was Yemen or some other location, I don't know that that would have been all that shocking or surprising or contrary to the expectations back then. But, of course, you know, it's sort of a a parlor game to talk about what these expectations were when things weren't actually considered and talked about. Right. Uh, I just don't think we can say that you definitely have to have the the stricter reading that you're suggesting either.
1: Yeah. I mean – I just so I think I think I can both believe that this is yet another example of how it is desperately incumbent upon Congress to respond to this. Yes, yeah, totally. Without thinking that like it's not
0: a powerful argument just because the Washington Times says it is. Well, there you won't get any disagreement. It, it cuts no ice with me what might be reported someplace. Um, the, the actual facts on the ground really matter. Of course, this gets at the question of yeah, okay, but what if the administration decides it's got a colorable argument that it can put forward and it decides to act. What's the, what's the enforcement mechanism here where Congress is, is supine about it? And, and right, that's, that's sort of the problem. I mean, we should be terrified
1: if this is right. Like, right, we should be terrified that any president, I don't even just mean this one, right, Obama, Trump, whoever, Um, can, you know, sort
0: of get us into war with Iran, which, by the way, would be a pretty big fracking deal. Right, which is why they're not, I think, ultimately, I don't know what the point of this trial balloon was, but it's very hard for me to imagine that someone thinks that the political constraints on doing that or pursuing that policy would be sufficiently uh, uh, corralled by making sort of a wafer-thin AUMF argument talking about how there's a handful of people that maybe are being supported there. But all that said, if you, if you change the fact pattern and if we all agreed that, look, this is amazing, they're, they're, they're putting out videos about how all the, the team has reunited in Tehran. They're all there and the regime loves them, which I realize is nothing like the actual facts on the ground here. But if you had that situation, it's not at all obvious to me that the 2001 AMF doesn't already apply. All right. Should we move on? Yeah, I'm just going to be grouchy. Okay. That's, that's completely fine because I've got something for you to be grouchy about. The emergency. Um, emergency. Okay. Uh, we have presidential proclamation number 9844, declaring a national emergency concerning the southern border, the United States, plus some other things that they decided to do at the same time. And If you read it all in the fact sheet at the same time, <laughs> you see that it's sort of a, a multi-layered set of tools or multiple tools being put into place at the same time. So, can I just, so just before we even get into the details, I mean, do you understand
1: the sequencing of the authorities to be that like the, the money that they're going to get from the military construction statute is going to be the
0: last money they use, like, years from now. So that's been reported that they're going to do it in sequence, and that would certainly be sort of smart litigation tactics to do it that way. Let's let's lay out for the people who've just emerged from their uh, <laughs> cave and are wondering, what is this about an emergency? You, you just uh, got back from NBA All-Star Weekend. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And,
1: and, and having... Um, Thoroughly enjoyed uh, the world's greatest bounce pass alley oop in the history of the basketball. Um, you're you're now wondering what what's what
0: what you know what national emergency happened while I was away. So the the long anticipated national emergency relating to the southern border has been declared by the president. Here here are the the key moving parts here and what the administration has done. Um, there is this proclamation and section one of it actually, let's do it in sequence. There's, there's preamble, and the preamble actually has an operative section. And the operative section is the part where the president invokes the National Emergencies Act, formally proclaims the existence of a national emergency relating to control over the southern border. And that's step one. Step two specifies further expressly with reference to 10 U.S. Code 2808 on the reprogramming of military construction dollars in the event of emergency, makes the requisite further assertion that said emergency is not just any old emergency, but one that, quote, requires the use of the armed forces, which is the further condition section 2808 requires beyond just proclaiming the emergency. So that's that's the big action item, and we'll talk about that at great length, but it wasn't the only thing that happened. Um, section one of the order separately and apart from that, Asked DOD to consider calling up the Ready Reserve of the Armed Forces to uh, bring more troops into the supply of troops supporting DHS down the border. This is all consequent to the April 2018. Uh, Trump memorandum directing and authorizing DOD to provide DHS with support down at the border, which all of last year led to all sorts of comedy about what those troops were doing to pass the time. Um, it's been less comical recently. They've, they've begun doing things more like, uh, you know, I think spreading barbed wire and so forth. Section two of the order which really kind of surprised me, but I, I don't. I felt bad that I was surprised because I should have seen this coming. Very interesting, elliptical in what it says, but here's the deal: it directs the Defense Department, the Interior Department, dun, 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 dun. yeah, Interior. Uh, think National Park Service, right? Uh, and DHS to coordinate, and then quote, if necessary, to coordinate on, if necessary, the transfer and acceptance of jurisdiction over borderlands. Well, Steve. Uh, what borderlands would the Interior Department have a say over that would be of interest here? Big mm. Bend? Big Bend is a big chunk of border right in Beto's backyard. Wow. That's, uh, that's really something that got my attention as a Texan who loves Big Bend. Just imagine. So the idea there, of course, is that these uh, the two leaders of DOD and Interior, both of whom are acting secretaries, not Senate confirmed secretaries, and we're told by the president that acting secretaries are great because, you know, it's just a little easier to get done what you need to get done. They've both been told in not so many words to look into what land along the border might need to be transferred to DOD in order to facilitate this support mission for DHS. Translation, for any strip of the border from from the Pacific on over to the Gulf if there's national park land or other land controlled by interior, this seems to be an invitation at least to consider stripping off the border portion wide enough to put in the wall and the maintenance road and turn that over to DOD to make it military land. And that's going to connect up, of course, with some of the funding we're about to talk about. Now, what is all this? Oh, wait, before I go on, it's not all there in the proclamation. You also separately have uh, directives apparently under 10 U.S. Code, Section 284, um, to basically take money uh, from the military, uh, money that'd be transferred from other military programs into the account that handles military support to anti-narcotics operations. And we'll talk more about what you can do under old Section 284 in a moment. The, the short version is you can build fences with it. Mm. Um, and so now we have a question about what counts as a fence. Um, and Steve, I feel like I'm forgetting something. Uh, there's all the uh, asset forfeiture funds uh-huh. as well.
1: Yep, the drug, the drug money.
0: So what's the upshot of it? What they need, in theory, is money and land. Money and land. Money to buy land, or, turns out, land that you get transferred from other sources. Right. Land that you could steal from the rest of the federal government. Exactly. And well, from the American public, if you're talking about Big Ben. Indeed. Um, so what money do they already have? Of course, they already had the one point whatever that Congress did give. They gave that much and no further, despite explicitly considering, to put it mildly, the request for more. Um, you end up with about 600 million dollars on top of that, so taking you to about 2. Point something billion uh, from the Treasury Department's asset forfeiture fund uh, that's supposed to support law enforcement pro- priorities. Enterprising reporters, let's go find out what's not going to get funded by way of law enforcement priorities because it might get diverted to this purpose. Uh, that that narcotics support account is supposed to generate basically an equivalent total amount of about 2.5 billion, bringing us up to around five, and then. Section twenty-eight hundred eight—that military construction fund reprogramming—that's going to be a redirection of about three point six billion more. So the you know, from
1: from from nothing other than projects that the Defense Department had specifically requested
0: appropriations for. Right. So now which, you know can't have any bearing on national security. It's just the Defense Department. Right. And there's been a request. I think Senator Kane has a letter to DOD asking for an enumeration of what is it that is not going to get funded. Right. Um, all right. So you've got around nine billion or so now in theory lined up. To support some combination of eminent domain actions and wall construction and road construction projects. Build that wall. Uh, There you go again. Um, So, Steve, uh, as you said a moment ago, the administration is at least suggesting that it's going to – it's not all just going to go into one common pot. These will be spent in sequence. Of course, the first most most, uh, obviously spendable – bucket would be the one-point-something that Congress uh, just provided for this for purpose. For expressly this purpose. Although, um, correct me if I'm
1: wrong, you, you, you followed this clip more closely than I have. If I understand correctly, the bill Congress passed does have a few, but not you can't use the money on this land. Right, that there are. If I, I think a few there are
0: spots you can't go. There are
1: a few spots where the where the money in that bill. So it doesn't say you can't build on this land. It just says yeah. none of the money appropriated by this statute can be used on a couple of different pieces of land.
0: But that's some pretty narrow land. Yeah, yeah, not might, big yeah. bed.
1: Yeah, yeah, right.
0: Okay, so uh, so we've got a lot of money available to him here. He's got the sequencing theory. This is the sequencing is relevant because it gets to some a set of threshold questions that this sudden avalanche of lawsuits. Surprise, surprise, <laughs> of lawsuits. Uh, shall we first identify all the people that are suing so far?
1: And they'll bring the lawsuit in the Ninth Circuit.
0: Yeah, That's, that's what Trump predicted, and right? And I'll
1: lose in the Ninth Circuit. And then we'll <laughs> go to the another court. And I'll lose in another court. And then we'll go to the
0: Supreme Court. And I'll win, oh, he Oh, gosh. Says. No, no, right.
1: and, and, and maybe I'll get a fair shake.
0: Oh, yeah, that's right. It was actually kind of interesting. Um, no,
1: it really wasn't. It was like deeply disturbing and, and like unhinged.
0: Which can be quite interesting. Yeah. Uh, so
1: just like a, yeah, yes, that's true. Actually, <laughs> right. Drive right. Watching a car accident can be interesting. Can
0: be quite interesting. All right. So there are suits filed. I think maybe the first one was the public, public citizen, citizen suit yeah. for uh, for a some Texas landowners who already have received notices that uh, that DHS has its eyes on the on their land, which is right up against the Rio Grande for building a border. Um, you also the ACLU. I don't know if they filed yet, but they've been talking about how I don't know if they're like waiting to find a client or what. But we're going to sue. Um, there's sixteen the, states. The, is it the Center for Biological Diversity? Yep. I think it was second out of the box with the, with the lawsuit that was very similar to the to the public citizen suit, and then a lot of attention as sixteen states, uh, Democratic governors, uh, California. Uh, New York, uh, some New Mexico, some border states, yes, but a whole bunch of states <laughs> are not border states that are getting in on the party. Although before everyone gets up in a tizzy about that, I mean, so- so We'll, we'll talk about standing. right. Let's come to standing and a second. Right. It's still, it. It's still funny, though. Um, so they've sued as well, and I'm sure there's more to come. Um, <laughs> location-wise, uh, at least some of these are in D.C. Steve, do you know, are any of them filed elsewhere? Because I know that the public citizen suit was uh, district court in Washington. to um, <sighs>
1: There's DC, there's California. I haven't seen anything other, other uh, in other jurisdictions yet.
0: So the states filed in California. Yeah. Okay. But can I
1: say? I mean, so, so um, there was a there was a uh, some uproar about how the the first lawsuit was brought in DC as opposed to in Texas. Well, but the defendants are in DC. DC yeah. is where the fed. Like this is not a f-
0: it is not forum shopping to sue the federal government in Washington DC. No, yeah. I agree. It's it's perfectly reasonable to sue there. I mean, you could have done it in Texas, but you didn't have to. Um, all right, so the suit's have all been filed. you want to talk first about the, the standing and ripeness and so forth? Or do you want to talk about the types of causes of action, the, the types of claims that are being made? I don't, I don't care. Do you, have, do you have the will and the energy to make it through this episode and this topic? I find
1: this whole thing so depressing. <laughs> it's just depressing. I mean, I, so, so I, I mean, I, I'm, let me jump ahead to the bottom line, right? Like I, I am not yet convinced that there's anything illegal yet, um, right? And yet... I'm horrified by all
0: of this. That's entirely, you know, because that which is lawful or not lawful does not have to be lawful but awful. Lawful but awful, unlawful but uh, this episode is lawful but awful. (laughs)
1: Um, So
0: that's going to be a big fight between that and Steve is is not Beyonce. Well, let's let's take it in. Let's talk about the claims first, right? Okay. Okay. So um, you you hear a mix of things. I, I woke up the other morning. NPR was interviewing somebody from Congress whose name I didn't catch, going on and on about how this is exact. I think the phrase was "It's on all fours with steel seizures." It is not on all fours of steel seizures because this is not, in the first instance, a claim of inherent unilateral executive power. He's clearly invoked a, a slew of statutory authorities. The question is, has he invoked them properly? I said the, I said the opposite of this on NPR yesterday, right? Yeah. This is, this is not you. a steel seizure case. This is not. I mean, it's certainly – I think it's actually relevant in terms of the atmospherics and the inflection. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But,
1: but, but, I mean, Truman, Truman went into court arguing that he had the inherent Article II power
0: to seize the steel mills. Exactly, and that's not what Trump is arguing here. So it's not it's not helpful. We'll come back around to where it, it may have a role to play, but only sort of indirectly. Yeah, right. exactly. So so what are the claims?
1: There are a series of statutory claims, and there are a couple of constitutional claims. Right. The core statutory claims, so far as I understand them, and you've been following this even more closely. So I'm going to go first, and you're going to you're going to correct me. Um, are one that the president's exceeding the authority Congress delegated under 2808. Right. That when we get all the way to the bottom of the barrel, um, the The funds that are being used, that are being accessed under twenty eight hundred eight, are not being are not necessary for such use of the armed forces. Um, right. right sort of getting right. all the way to the bottom of the chain right the,
0: the, the key phrase requires the use of the armed forces not factually satisfied here right. despite what the president right. said
1: um two um, starting closer to home I'm not I didn't organize this well but two starting closer to home um, that this is not in fact a national emergency for purposes of the National Emergencies mm-hmm. Act and so the president is
0: violating the National Emergencies mm-hmm. Act so same type of same type of argument so that one kind of comes first logically yes. right it's, yes there's, there's not really an emergency even if there is an emergency it doesn't really require the use of the right. armed forces um, I think one of the cases had an APA claim, right, that the, the government hadn't
1: followed the proper administrative procedure. Um, I think the Center for Biological Diversity suit has a series of environmental law claims that the that the government can't take all of these steps without dotting the, the right I's and crossing the right T's from on the environmental regulation side.
0: Which is interesting. I, I think that uh, I'm no there expert are some on waivers, that one. Right? But there mean, is a, there's a – DHS has a waiver from a prior bill that uh, has language in it about how – and I think we talked about it yeah. on the show – that you have to build – there was an obligation to construct at least I think 800 miles yep, yep. Uh, and they've gone over 800 miles but it's not phrased as no more than 800 right. miles. So I think their waiver of NEPA actually still applies Probably. Here. But there's, I mean, I'm, not, I'm not assessing these. That's the defense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um,
1: there's a claim that the uh, actions violate the Anti-Deficiency Act because the government is spending money that was not properly appropriated for those purposes. Um, there's a constitutional claim that the government is violating Article 1, Section 7 by spending money that hasn't been appropriated by the Treasury. Um, This is similar, or maybe it's Article 1, Section 9. Article 1, um, right? Similar to the House of Representatives lawsuit against the Obama administration for the cost-sharing reduction payments under Obamacare. Mm. Um, What else? Uh, Takings, right? There's the sort of, and you're going to have to take property, and there's no public use justifying the taking because there's no statutory authority for the taking.
0: So should we... uh, Did did I miss any big ones? No, I think that that pretty much runs it. There's also references to the idea that what they're planning to do might not uh, qualify as a... Offense within the language of Section 284. Yeah, I, I, I don't do see that I, I, I,
1: I just I I can't get excited about the argument that oh uh, that barrier is not offense. That this is going to come down to the meaning of offense.
0: Well, I think that you know if it has to be offense, I think the Trump administration will take that on those dollars. That. So I don't think it helps them much. Um, and uh, so let's talk a little bit about the merits of these just briefly. And do you want to be standing first or do you want no, to say that No, okay. let's come back to Let's just say whether there's legs to any of this. So I, I have thought from the beginning, and you
1: and I, I think, have largely been on the same page here, that the strongest argument by far, barring some hiccup that we have not yet seen in how this is administered, is all the way at the bottom of the chain is the 2808 argument about whether the construction of the wall, where it's being constructed, actually is necessary for the armed forces and for the use of the armed
0: forces, yeah, right? They're with, within the language of 2808. Right. So, so let's, I agree with that. So, to knock real quickly, the one that everyone's focused on is, but it's not an emergency. Everybody knows nah. it's not really an emergency. There's no statutory definition. It is going to be extremely difficult to create a sustainable on review ruling that says that uh, the the president may have claimed this, but we're going to second guess it and say, nope, not enough of an emergency when the term's undefined. I'm not saying that that can't happen. Uh, What I've told every reporter I've talked to about this is 99 cases out of 100, maybe 999 out of 1,000, a president wins this. But Trump's different, and he keeps saying stuff, like what he said well, I mean, while right. announcing the when emergency. He, listen,
1: I mean, you know, Bill Barr is sitting in the front row, right? When he hears the president saying, I didn't need to do this, but I wanted to do it faster.
0: Like, no. Dude! shut up! <laughs> I think actually if you can read his lips, I think he actually says that. Right. Um, I'm sure he's thinking instead like, I thought I'd get more days before something like that happened.
1: Now, now the <laughs> irony is, I actually, so I, I, I'm, I'm in this weird position, right, where I think this is all horrible, but I'm actually being trying to be nuanced about the legalities, right? Um, As you should be, it's good. Um, but so so there's a reporter who called me on Friday and said, is this going to be what, you know, the undoing of the lawsuit that the president said this? I'm like, no, because I really don't think this is going to end on the question of whether in fact there's an emergency, right? That, that even if courts believe it's justiciable. Because one argument is that it's not justiciable because no, there's we're no get, judicially yeah. manageable standard. Yeah, we'll get to that. Um, well, that's a political question, right? On the on the sort of, is it a violation of the National Emergencies Act? Even if the court, the court might say, you know, perhaps citing national security fact deference, ah. um, that we have the power to decide whether there's a national emergency, but that Congress's refusal to define the term yeah. means we have to give substantial deference to the determination of such by the executive branch, even if were it up to us,
0: we might conclude otherwise. Right. And so you might see them say, look, it'd be one thing if he was saying that there were actually aliens from Mars coming down spaceships, and it's obviously (laughs) not true, and it's crazy. Maybe it's some outer boundary police it, but this is enough in the gray zone to where we really can't second guess it. That with the the emergency term is is probably how this is going to go. And so the interesting question is, well, why wouldn't it be the same thing with 2808 requires the use of the Armed Forces standard. My instinct is, and I wonder if you share this, yeah. there's a little more meat on the bones there that that's not as vague. Right. Now, as, but- the, the term emergency,
1: right, versus action that requires the use of the armed forces but of
0: course this kind of gets to the old sort of hamilton madison debate about necessary and proper do we mean strict necessity or do we mean utility as a forgiving version of necessity well do we mean strictly requires as in like only an invasion of real armed people would really trigger it can't be right that's too demanding once you forgive once you move beyond that and requires these armed forces becomes a little bit more flexible Maybe we're, we're stuck with an analysis where the court says, look, that basically means, is it plausible that that it's useful or important to use armed forces? But here, Maybe that's enough for him to win. But
1: here's the problem, right? So this is where I actually think the argument gets more interesting, because to me, Um, The government would be on much firmer footing if there weren't clear statutory and historical constraints on the use of the military for border enforcement, right? That is to Uh say um, that if your argument is building a wall is necessary to protect national security and therefore is necessary for the military, that would sound a lot better if the military actually consistently and by statute were to play, were are supposed to play a leading role in border security. They're not, and so it seems to me that the argument of 2808 is bolstered, right, as contrasted to the National Emergencies Act argument by the far more comprehensive statutory regime governing responsibility for border security.
0: So I hate to do this because I'm I'm not happy about these yeah. developments, but I'm I'm going to make the other argument, and that is that there is statutory authority for DoD and the military to play a role in support of yes. DHS. And that role, by being recognized in statute, therefore, is clearly an important and legitimate role for the military. Even if, even if we're not talking about out-and-out invasions, where, of course, the military would have a, you know, if it's sort of a Pancho Villa type situation where there's more of an obvious yeah. military, traditional role, there's still this support role that is important, is a military mission by statute, and therefore, if you take the view as the president's going to assert, or president's lawyers will assert that he does, um, that that support mission is implicated here, then couldn't you say that this particular national emergency does require the use in that sense of the military and therefore some military construction to support that? It's not
1: a frivolous argument. I mean, I I have to concede that. But, I mean, if I'm a federal judge and I want the sort of the most plausible ground on which to rule against this thing, right, I think that that this is going to be where the rubber hits the road and not –
0: the sort of broader is it an emergency or not? Uh, completely agreed there. Like it's you're you're much better off and it's much narrower and does less disruption. Right in, in a okay, case, so I've got this Op-ed in the New York Times today. Well, Very good. good you people should read it. Check it out. Um, I'm, it's, it's a typical sort of like we're you know we've got to watch out for extremes in both directions. <laughs> Imagine me saying something like that. Um, yeah. But I, I do want to flag that you know there's a risk here that there could be a precedent ultimately generated. I don't think it's likely, but you could get a precedent that unduly guts deference to the executive branch. Uh, in a way that we wouldn't be happy about in normal times, perhaps, or some of us wouldn't be happy about. And so, would, and I'd be, if I'm a judge that's worried about that, I'm much more comfortable taking a narrow view, yep. a, a less deferential view of 2808's requires the use of the armed forces. Then the National
1: Emergency Act and failure exactly. to define what a national emergency is. Exactly. I
0: completely agree with that,
1: and I just don't understand all the folks who are arguing the contrary. I mean, like, I I get the politics
0: and the optics of it, but legally, it just, you know... Well, it's often non-lawyers who are taking this view because there is a sort of of license. There's a lot of... A lot of laypersons looking at this saying, like, look, is it, everyone knows what's really going on. You know it's not an emergency. So why couldn't a judge intervene? And the fact that there's not a definition and that the term is capacious. Uh, so, I mean, I think but, –
1: but so all this is to say if and when we get to the merits, you and I, I think, agree that everything to fight for is going to be under 2808. Now, that presupposes we get to the merits.
0: Yeah, and there's some real obstacles here. Oh, yeah.
1: So um, the two that I think are most impl- – so people have been talking about ripeness – Um, And standing. I want to suggest it's actually more about causation than ripeness. Um, But let's let's break this down. So um, I have been, as I think I've said on this podcast before, one of the unusual progressive skeptics. Of state and legislative standing, right? That, that, that I actually think there are real problems that accepting the sort of core parameters of the Supreme Court standing jurisprudence, I have real problems with allowing states to sue anytime the federal government does something that they don't like. Um, and I have real problems with allowing Congress or one chamber of Congress to sue anytime the president does something they don't like. Um, And so I have problems with the theory of standing on which both the state's lawsuit is predicated here and on which what I imagine is the forthcoming House of Representatives lawsuit Mm -hmm. will be premised. Um, Now, that's not to say they... They can't point to precedent. They both can. California and the other states can point to the Texas lawsuit challenging DAPA, mm-hmm. where the Fifth Circuit upheld the standing of states in a situation where I just thought there was no good, reason, good argument for that. Um, and the House can point to the D.C. District Court's ruling in House of Representatives versus Burwell, which upheld the House's standing to challenge the Obama administration's um, spending of money the House claimed was not authorized to be spent under the you know, by appropriation um, as part of the ACA. Right so there's precedent that both of these suits can rely upon I don't think either of them are right and I think more as a structural matter I'm wary of a world in which the institutions that have checks and that have political mechanisms for holding the federal government to account are repairing to the courts in the first instance. How,
0: how much of this partakes of an appreciation, how over the past, I would say, about six years or so, I'm not sure when this really kind of gathered steam, but there's this whole sort of thing now where attorneys general of whatever's the yeah. opposite party of the White House become sort of, they get a lot of media attention and build a lot of their own reputation and and pursue their policy objectives very visibly by forming coalitions to sue. I mean, I I, so I don't want to say that it started
1: during the Obama administration, but it certainly reached new heights during the Obama administration. And you saw efforts by lower courts to sort of push back. So for example, um, in the original Affordable Care Act litigation, the Fourth Circuit held that Virginia didn't have standing on the challenge individual mandate. Um, The 11th Circuit upheld Florida's standing only to challenge the Medicaid expansion, which made sense because that was about the state as such, not the state representing its, its interests. I just, there's a, broader, there's a broader movement toward resolving all of our disputes in courts that right. led to treating institutions as favored litigants. Right. And I don't think that is, in the broader, longer-term view of things, right or responsible. I'm much more partial to the, you know, I have an individual direct injury to myself yep. lawsuits,
0: of which, by the way, there are going to be plenty. Right. And so the first one out of the box is that kind, the right. public citizen case. Landowners land in owner. Texas. Land, it's been obvious to both of us, I think, from the beginning that people who clearly have standing are ones whose land – might be condemned in property part. rights are the classic right common law injuries are the classic stuff of standing. Yep. So we've got we've got at least some people right. standing. So some of these suits might go away, but it doesn't really matter. No, I mean some of them will go forward.
1: Now then we get to justiciability. Well, standing's justiciability, but then we get right. to so what some folks have said is a ripeness concern, which is that um, until we at, until the government actually starts spending money
0: under the emergency declaration. Right, because we've got one point something billion from the proper yep. uh, appropriation. We've got we one point three billion
1: under- directly. We've got the drug money, and then we've got you know yeah. the emergency money.
0: Yeah, the stuff you're complaining about doesn't come up until later. Right, and therefore
1: so, wait to sue till. Later. I actually think that that's best understood as a causation objection. That it's a different problem of standing. So standing has three prongs: injury, in fact, causation, and redressability. Um, injury in fact is: were you actually, you know, did you suffer a um, concrete and particularized injury that's actual or imminent? Right. Okay. Um, check right causation is was your injury caused by the thing you are challenging and then redressability is if we give you the relief you know are we in a position to provide you with the relief you're seeking so
0: it's not ripeness because the injury is happening now or is beginning to happen yeah. and it's just that you can't necessarily show that it's attributable to the thing you're mad about. Right,
1: so just to go back to our, our sort of, you know, closer to home for us, in the Clapper versus Amnesty International case the Supreme Court side in 2013, um, although the heart of the Supreme Court's holding that the plaintiffs lacked standing on challenge, the NSA's, you know, surveillance program under Section 702, was that they couldn't show that the surveillance was, was certainly impending. Justice Alito also points out that they couldn't show that even if their communications were being intercepted, it was under 702 as opposed to like 12333. Yeah. And that's a causation problem. So. I think there's going to be an interesting causation issue. Now, one way around that, right, is to argue that um the sequencing aside, this is one policy, right? that that the 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 building the wall is an integrated policy that depends upon multiple inputs for money, um, and that the money is, you know, actually fungible. Um, and so it doesn't matter, you know, being able to trace $1 to this bucket versus that bucket doesn't matter if the Trump administration's own policies that
0: they're spending total money
1: on right. one thing.
0: Interesting. D- does that mean that if you're seeking redress only as to yourself, you have a problem? But if you're seeking broader redress, maybe. like a nationwide injunction, maybe that kind of goes I more mean, with the it, grain of that line maybe. of argument? Maybe. And that's not, that's, that may sound counterintuitive. It's
1: actually not weird in this context, that, like, the broader the relief you're seeking, the easier it is to show causation and redressability. Right. Um, I will just say, though— Let's not lose sight of the thread here. If The, if the, gov- the government's in a bit of a difficult position here. Because if the government shows up and says there's no causation because we're not planning to spend <laughs> exactly. the emergency money Hello. for like 10 years, yeah. then the courts going to be like, then why did you declare a national emergency? Right. right? So, so, right. A, so right. this is, this is a, it's an awkward litigation problem for the government because I see the – it's right in front of you that the sequencing would give them a justiciability objection. Right, but then you have to basically say that this is all a political stunt.
0: Well, there, you know, there are ways to talk around it and have it both ways, but that requires a lot of nuance and a lot of detail. And if the uh, decision maker is inclined to go against the government on requires these of the armed forces or in emergencies, the sequencing move can provide them fodder that they will seize upon to bolster the argument. Another thing they can seize upon to bolster the argument, I think if we do see a non-deference ruling, certainly it ought to emphasize this, that there is there is a unusual uh, factor here that's not been present in, in any prior emergency declaration, to, to the best of my knowledge, under the National Emergencies Act or prior to that. And people act like there were no emergencies before then. We just didn't have the National Emergencies Act framework. We had all sorts of prior emergencies. Um And that is a situation in which there is an express consideration of an appropriations question in Congress. There's a huge political battle. Everybody knows what's going on. The president loses in significant part. And the emergency is expressly designed to circumvent that result. That doesn't make it unconstitutional. It makes it something that's different from the other emergencies that could then be a feature in the explanation. As to why the judge doesn't defer as much as they otherwise might have. In other words, I'm not saying it's still seizures. I'm saying it could help explain a posture of limited or non-deference. Okay, so standing won't block some of these suits. Ripeness may or may not. It shouldn't. It shouldn't. shouldn't. It's a bit of a poison chalice. Yes. I'm not sure it shouldn't. but I do recognize that insofar as the argument's made in a strong way, strong enough to win, to knock somebody out at that threshold level, it does actually create a merits problem. Yep. Um, what about the separate non-litigation? Oh, wait. I had one other kind of Fed Courtsy question. Ooh. So another uh, Fed courts question. Uh, a, co- a colleague of ours said, "What's the cause of action? Like, what statute are they invoking? Is it APA, Administrative Procedures Act?" I said, "No, no, no. It's it's always framed. At least the first couple of complaints I looked at, they all say non-statutory cause of action for injunction against ultra Vera's government action. Um, can you say anything about that to shed light on what's going on there?" Sure. Um, so
1: I'm trying to think of the the thirty second version. Um, so the Supreme Court has recognized for the better part of 110 years, ever since Ex parte Young and General Oil versus Crane, um, that the federal courts have the power to entertain actions for injunctive relief against state or federal officers, um, even if Congress has not provided an express cause of action. Now, there was for about 100 years um, really big fighting, especially among Fed court scholars, as to the source of this cause of action. Did this cause of action come directly from the Constitution? Um, Did it come from the Supremacy Clause? Did it come from whichever constitutional provision was allegedly being offended and thus Mm -hmm. being enforced? Um, And in this really, really important but obscure case in 2015, um, a case called Armstrong versus Exceptional Child Center, um, the Supreme Court, in an opinion by Justice Scalia, holds that no, the cause of action in this context actually comes from background principles of equity. Um, And so it's – I I don't want to call it a common law cause of action because it comes from equity. And equity is the opposite. Equity is not common law. But it is this sort of freestanding, judge-made cause of action that derives from traditional principles of equity, um, which is relevant in two respects. One, that means it's at least in theory subject to legislative interference, although we haven't seen any efforts to that direction. Um, Two, um, it also suggests that – the cause of action um, may not have quite the same teeth that it would if it were like derived from the Constitution, right? That separate from constraining the legislature, it might impose less of an affirmative obligation on the courts. So for example, in Armstrong, um, after concluding that this comes from background principles of equity, um, the court then says, therefore, there's no cause of action in that case to enforce the provisions of the federal Medicaid statute um, against a non-complying state. even Why? Right. Well, because the, the Medicaid statute could be read not to displace the equitable cause of action, but to provide enough remedies otherwise that we don't have to worry about. Like, like it allows for the entrance of considerations that wouldn't apply if it were a constitutionally grounded claim.
0: So that's a perfect segue to the next question. Ooh. Does the National Emergencies Act by having... A legislative what, remedy. What some people look at <laughs> and think that there's, oh, Congress has a remedy built in because there's a yeah. sunset and a disapproval. There's no sunset. Climb. Well, okay, there's a. Yeah, right, right. I'm saying like, what there's people, a weak ass sunset. There's a You know, that's the technical term. It's a WAS, a weak ass sunset. Yeah. So it's got a weak ass sunset. It says, uh, first of all, uh, it's good, the, the declaration is good for one year. 90 days out, it can be renewed by the um, president with
1: no c- right, consultation. Right.
0: So, it, so it's sort of a, you know, it's sunset, yeah, Tip but the, the president can just, you know, as long as somebody at the Staff Secretary Office is making sure they issue renewals, and this happens all the time. By the way, yeah. there's constant federal register yeah, publications yeah. of renewals. Then, um, then a lot of people say, like, "Oh, Congress can vote to overturn it." Sort of, not. Not effectively, right? So this is, I mean, uh, this they is, can pass They can pass a law. They can pass a joint resolution. And if they can either get Trump to sign it, which obviously won't happen, or if they can somehow muster supermajorities to override his veto, which won't happen. won't happen, yeah, then they could override it. And they could do that, frankly, even if the National Emergencies Act didn't say they could do that. That's right. Of course you can do it. That's right. All the National Emergencies Act does is it paves the way to prevent the, the people who control the legislative agenda in the Senate and the House from preventing this from coming up for a vote. Right. It creates and,
1: so-called fast-track procedures, yeah, right? And which so- is good. That's not enough. Nothing. No, no. I, it's not nothing, although it's not much. Um, right. I mean, all, all it means is that if the House actually succeeds in passing a termination resolution, it's probably the case that McConnell has to have a vote. Yep. Um, and indeed, my understanding from the parliamentarians in the House is that vote would not be subject to cloture. That's right. Um, there's that a privileged resolution. There's no cloture.
0: Yeah. So it does have the p- politics forcing function of making people go on the record. which, Which I
1: should say. I find value in. Like, that I is. I actually don't think that if it fails, that would actually further empower Trump. I actually think it will, you know, especially for those senators who are up for election in 2020, it'll put them on the record. Um, it, we should stress, though, that in this regard, the National Emergencies Act is a completely self-inflicted wound. Um, the original statute, as I think we've discussed before, um, provided for termination through a concurrent resolution, which was just a majority vote of both houses. To a legislative veto. A legislative veto. Which now, mind you, the Supreme Court says it's unconstitutional and chada. But how do you respond if you're Congress? So one response is, well, if we don't have the power to terminate by legislative veto, we're gonna. Change the real, delegation. Real sunsets, Let, right? Let's do some real sunsets. Um, instead, Congress says, "Oh, okay. Well, then we'll do a joint resolution, right?" Which is tantamount to not doing anything at all. I, I mean, it's it, it's as if I mean it's as if Congress said, "Oh, okay. So we lost one check. Well, let's just take away all of them."
0: Right. I, so I think this raises the question of uh, in some future date when the National Emergencies Act is being reformed, which I think a lot of people are looking at the state affairs, saying. Well, maybe we do want some tighter controls on this particular – it's a a skeleton key that unlocks all these doors. We should control it more. Um, What should that look like? Well, one thing you could do certainly would be to make the weak-ass sunset into a real sunset where what the president is given is the ability for some set number of days. 30 or 60. 30, 60, 10, whatever it is. uh, To go to loan. To go to loan. and, And these authorities are available only during that window. And then that's it.
1: Right. Bar right, barring a joint resolution that 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 uh, that acknowledges and and keep the privilege, like keep the fast track, right? I mean, yeah, yeah. I'm all for that, but you know that it expires at the end. Now, you know the lessons from the war power. The, this is the model. That's of the war power where power resolution. I was going. I'm so, so pleased. Um I mean, the, you know, the NEA was modeled to some degree on the War Powers Resolution, which was three years so prior. Much. Well, that's the thing. Um, We've talked before about all the ways in which the War Power Resolution is completely broken. Um, but there's one critical difference between the War Power Resolution and the National Emergencies Act that I think would lend itself to a sunset being effective. The War Power Resolution has this really awkward trigger Um, which is the report to Congress, Mm -hmm. right? And we've talked before about how presidents of both parties have creatively interpreted the when a report to Congress is required to avoid starting the 60-day clock of the War Powers Resolution. There's no awkwardness about the trigger under the National Emergency Act. The president has to publicly put his name to a piece of paper declaring a national emergency, and the moment he does that, the clock starts running, and that's true already under existing law. So I actually think a sunset in the NEA
0: would be more effective right off the bat than a sunset in the WPR. So the, here, here are two obstacles to this pathway, which I just sound like I was endorsing, so now let me criticize uh. it. Um, one is there is this sort of seriatim problem. Mm-hmm. So let's imagine in a different fact pattern there actually is some kind of significant border control problem that's much more plausible to say it's an emergency. So the president declares uh, an declares emergency in relation to it. And then the clock runs, and for whatever reason, Congress doesn't act, and so the thing sunsets. It's a, it's a two days later, or it's a month later, or it's a year later, and at a different point in the same border, or nearby, or in a way that seems related, but isn't exactly the same case. Can the president start over again, or is that whole to- – obviously, the whole topic area can't be mm-hmm. negated for the whole presidency. There's sort of an administrability problem with – how does it not just how does not just keep declaring new emergency? Exactly. Why, right. you know. What and if the president says like the day that it expires, right? Okay, new declaration. Here we go again. But I but I, so I think you
1: could I think you could draft around that problem, right? Because keep in mind, I mean, you you talked about the key metaphor, right? Yep. So what are we unlocking? We're unlocking access to specific statutes. You could write into the sunset that no emergency declaration um, ins- will be valid insofar as it unlocks the same statutes. Right without like you could uh, I I the drafting would be tricky, but you could do it. Like you could find a way to sort of say you can't get around this by just do it. I mean the war resolution has the same thing. Like you could just keep saying, I'm introducing you know yeah I'm reintroducing troops. Yeah, we're going back. Hey, we you pulled everyone out, they sit in the aircraft right. car
0: for a while, then they go back in right. the next week. So I I, th- a I cooling know, off period, is I, that all you get? I, I think you could draft around it and more to the point, I think the politics of right of right. the
1: sunset would actually be doing most of the
0: work. Well, okay, so I agree with that. So I'm I'm actually skeptical we can draft around this seriatim problem, but I do think that you, you can could do, mitigate it at least. You, You could minimize it to some extent. I'm really worried that if PIN had to be put to paper, I'd have a hard time doing it effectively. But I think you might then do what you just said, which is so instead put in things sort of once it's expired, try to create mechanisms that then enhance the political bite, right? Um, But it just reminds me and it reminds us of the theme we keep coming back to, which is a lot of this stuff depends on some amount of good faith by the participants in the process. Now, here's a separate problem that's highlighted by this particular Uh, National Emergency Act combined with 2808, some national emergency declarations, the president needs to get the skeleton key by declaring the emergency and needs to be able to keep it in the lock for a period of time to keep doing what they're doing. So that's the case, for example, with sanctions under IEPA, right? With spending reprogramming, if they were effective enough, and they're not, they're terribly ineffective how they're organized, but they were, if they were effective enough, Within 10 minutes of issuing the proclamation, the same day, he might already have the paperwork all lined up to have DOD and interior yeah. or DOD uh, do whatever moving of money it was going to do. Right. Uh and it'd be over like that, and that's just like War Powers Resolution, where the sixty-day clock and the notifications yep. and all that don't really matter if you're planning one airstrike one that, time. That's
1: right. That's right. But I, that's
0: not this emergency, right? And and that's not like well, it could be, right? Like if he was really at, at risk of having of having the key taken out of the door, he <laughs> build, could build call up, build build one day. Call call no, call Secretary Shanahan and say, move the money to this Act account. Acting Secretary Shanahan. Yes, acting ter- acting Secretary Shanahan, move the money now. <laughs> okay. Click done. Money moved to the account. Yeah, I, I I hear
1: that. I just I again I still think that the pot like the you would be changing the pot if Congress had to put it, even if that happened. Right, yeah. you'd have the optics of of formal congressional disapproval just through quiescence, just yeah. through inertia.
0: Yo, know, how about this as a as a more targeted solution then? How about a reform since. Um, almost never in the past has the declaration of national emergency primarily been about moving money around yeah. to overcome a budget problem. Yeah, how about if what do we mean, s- almost never? Is, are there any examples? Uh, I, I'm, I, I went back I'm and sure, looked. What well, has twenty eight oh eight ever been used? Probably, right? Maybe before I think I, Actually, I, no, I think uh, I think after 9-11, there was some, some actual real military You're right. but, stuff but, was moved you know, around. I've said, I, I,
1: I've said, and I stand by this statement, that there's no example in the 43-year history of the National Emergency
0: Act where the president went to Congress for a specific authority, oh, yeah. was no, rebuffed, no question. No and question. then declared a national emergency. Absolutely right. Okay. So you could try to legislate to capture that scenario and just say, like, uh, everything else that's true about this framework just doesn't work if it's within you know right. X number of days of that thing being asked for. Yeah. A little tricky on the drafting. What if you just changed 2808 and just uh, forbade the expenditure from involving anything in the nature of construction or land purchase inside the United States? Yeah, I mean, that would work too. And um, so that, that, although, would leave, although, that would leave some useful things aside in real emergencies.
1: But what about – right. I mean, but what about I, – I thought that there was some of this happens on military bases, like building a middle school
0: on a military base. Well, so – what well, you mean in terms of what they could do with 2808 yeah, funds? Yeah, yeah. Like,
1: like, so, nope. like, like I feel like they're valid de- – I feel like there are non-Trump-related valid
0: 2808 – I'm not saying that 2808 funds shouldn't be uh- – I'm not saying military construction shouldn't take place in the United States. I'm saying that any reprogramming where you're taking away from what Congress wanted military construction to be and, and diverting that to suit the president's alleged national yeah. security emergency priority, um, still fine as long as what you're doing is spending that money outside the United States on military facilities or purchases o- overseas. But if you're doing it internally in the United States, you should just have to go to Congress for that. Yeah, I think that makes sense. Um, okay, so all this
1: is to say— We've just been very lawyerly for like about 25 or 30 minutes. Time to take off the lawyer hat. This is insane. And this (laughs) is really horrifying and it's stupid. And it is embarrassing that congressional Republicans who up until the middle of last week had, I think, to their credit, been quite skeptical of and indeed had sent many warning shots to the president have rolled over. And just said, oh, well, never. uh, Now, uh, uh, the law, I've I've analyzed it and it seems illegal, and that's all I'm going to say about the matter.
0: Yeah, I'll I'll say this. It it was said, as you noted before, by many Republicans that this is a precedent that will be turned. Uh, in ways that Republicans will not like... And that I will. ...in the future, or that could be. Yes. And it's it's no good to say, like, well, no one else would would uh, so cynically invoke an emergency. Come on. you The, the fact that this might go through and might be sustained will tend to normalize it.
1: Not only that, but it also, to me, and, and I, I, I don't want to get you in trouble, but to me it highlights the rank hypocrisy of all the Republicans who spent so much of the Obama administration railing about his unilateral abuse of executive power.
0: Oh, I will happily criticize anyone who has been willing, in other contexts, to denounce uh, executive unilateralism, article unilateralism, or encroachments of executive power, and who- Including the junior senator from Texas? Ted Cruz, yeah, yeah. There's like the, that video that's yeah. making the rounds. It's look, I, I don't, I don't doubt that a lot of them are thinking this is this is a disaster, and they're trying to figure out politically where can they actually act on that. Where are your principles? Right? Like, I'm just, no, I'm sorry. I know. I know. Where are your principles? I know. They ought to, they ought to, they ought to be able to say. And I think I this think, is this. Thus, let me thus far, fish, have let we, we finish the thought? Sorry. Um, I think it'll be interesting to see. There's there's a question of how soon do they have to get this denunciation out to to some extent really be honest with those principles and live up to those principles. We'll see. But I'm I'm worried that the filing of the litiga- the litigations is going to have that effect. We so often see in our country where people say, "Well, it's kind of in the court's hands now, and I, I will trust the courts will. If this was wrong, they'll they'll say it's wrong." Um, Come I think, on. I think that once again puts too much pressure on the courts. Um, the the laws we've recited it here is not particularly friendly towards second-guessing what the president did. Yeah,
1: and and so, you know, stand up here. I mean, the, I'm going to do something really crazy. I'm going to quote the Bible, okay? Job, Love it. Job 3811, right? This far you have come and no farther. Like, where is the stopping point for you at this point if you are a congressional Republican? What could, what would the president have to do for you to publicly denounce him at
0: this point? I hope that we're going to see some criticisms of this Plainly cynical invocation of the national emergency. Let's see act the vote. Let's let's see the vote. Well, that's that's where that we've been bashing on the national Emergencies act procedural safeguards, but let's go back to that point. It, there will be a vote. Yeah, and and it would be nice to see some people who. Stand against undue concentrations of executive power. Um, putting that putting that vote where their mouth is.
1: I'm just going to go on a limb right now and say that it gets fewer than 60 votes in the Senate. It'll pass the yeah. Senate. Like we'll get a majority in the Senate because a couple Republicans. let well, we'll make say, a I th- big I, show.
0: I, I think you will see some Republicans who will vote against. Them. Yeah,
1: but not enough. Not but 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 a comfortably small enough number that there's no real threat of a veto override. Probably
0: right. Probably right. All right. So Boom. on a less heavy note. You want to close out with some silliness? Sure. Oh, uh, James Taylor, Bonnie Raitt? Uh, I would love to hear. I, I do love me some James Taylor.
1: So Karen and I,
0: um, in a rare act of going out twice
1: in one week, right. to say yeah, nothing you... of twice in one month, to say nothing of twice in a semester, um, went last Wednesday night to watch Bonnie Raitt and James Taylor at uh, the Frank Irwin Center. So I thoroughly enjoyed the show. Bonnie Raitt was fun. James Taylor was excellent. i got to say, I, there is there is a – a um, artist to venue ratio issue that arose in that context. It was in the Irwin Center. It was in the
0: Irwin Center. Should have been the th- should have been the, uh, the, the Paramount, the Paramount or, or the Moody or the Moody better, right yeah. or like
1: one of those more intimate. So so just non Austin folks. The Irwin Center is the University of Texas is you know big arena. Yeah, it's a drum. It's a drum. It's literally called the drum. It's yeah. a concrete drum. Um, it's not the most aesthetically interesting or pleasing part of our no, campus. it's not a great. It's it's, and it's not not on the way out to see a show. Um, it's our basketball arena. You know, it's not bad for 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 acts that can fill it. So you know, we'd seen Fleetwood Mac there five days earlier. Um, and Fleetwood Mac can fill an arena, right? Yeah. I mean, um, and it wasn't that it was underattended. Like, um, you know, most of the seats were filled. It's that, it's just. It's a mellow show. It's not the, it's not the sound that, like, you know, you you don't like when you go to see like the Indigo Girls at the Paramount Theater, right? Like, you feel very intimate. Like, you yeah. feel, you know you were up there with them, and, and
0: James Taylor. You know, I don't know so much about Bonnie Ray, yeah. but I certainly know my James Taylor, and that's a show you want to see. You want to be relatively close. You want to be able to see his fingers on the guitar yeah. without even stare at the monitor, and have it feel intimate. And, and and so I have to say, the music was fantastic. But Karen
1: and I both walked away saying there were various points in the show where we were bored. Yeah, that's and tough. that's just not
0: that's not what you want from a concert. Not what you want. That's so, too bad.
1: Which is too bad because I mean the show was great. The music was great. Love me some James Taylor. But And now we're going to you know go be hermits for another six months. <laughs>
0: exactly. Well, you're, you're one ahead of me.
1: Um, let's see what else. Um, you are catching up on True Detective. Yeah. We're, okay. So we, we've
0: watched through episodes three only. Please, no spoilers. Four to go. We are going to try to jam them in this Just week. Friends,
1: I've, Karen and I have invited Bobby and Heather, if they make it, to come to our house Sunday night to watch the season finale.
0: I think that the odds are against <laughs> us getting this done because I was thinking when was the last time in our adult lives we've actually had the free time in the evening with the kids mm. Uh, where we could watch, you know, enough TV to just get what four episodes yeah. behind? I don't like our chances. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, all you have to do is knock out three between now
1: and Saturday, and find one hour on Sunday to prep. So, come, come over at seven. We'll give you some beer. You can watch episode seven and get ready for episode for the season finale. There you
0: go. We'll, we'll give it our best shot. Um,
1: all right. Well, yeah. I don't know. I'm I, tired.
0: I'm tired. Let's call it. This is bo- this is it's not
1: boring. It's just depressing.
0: Oh, I'm sorry, man.
1: But oh well. Hey,
0: at least John Santo to is fun to watch play basketball. Well, I'll, I'll tell you who's fun to watch: um, Hersal Ali is, re- and Stephen Dorff both. I, I mean, told that, you. No, I mean it's really unbelievable. Yeah. It's really amazing.
1: By the way, one last thing before we go. Yeah. Um, did you see that there's a, a sequel to Frozen coming out? I did. I saw the trailer. You Frozen want to review too. the trailer? Uh, Let's review it. Maybe next week. Okay. <laughs> so we'll keep. We'll give people something to to, yeah. to be on the lookout for. So yeah. um, we'll be back next week, probably regular time. Hopefully we won't have the same amount of news between yeah, now. maybe 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 do a deep dive. Deep dive. Deep dive.
0: Deep dive.
1: Um, he's at Bobby Chesney. I'm at underscore. I'm at underscore. No, I'm Steve. <laughs> I'm at Steve underscore Vladek. I can't even talk anymore. We are at NSL Podcast. Um, We hope you actually got something out of our little emergency discussion. This podcast is not a national emergency, but you should still stay safe out there. Adios.